This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, Pacific pundits make their predictions as Rugby World Cup fever takes hold. Genuinely, what I think in my heart is that this is going to be the tournament of the Pacific Island Nations. Also, the Solomon Islands open a new water facility ahead of the Pacific Games. It's a new sport and something new for Vaatu to have a place that we can call our own. And the creator of a new two-part documentary series on Israel Folau joins the show. I'm your host, Kyle Evans. Thanks for joining me. But first, the Flying Fijians have suffered a blow ahead of their Rugby World Cup opener with Wales after promising fly half Caleb Munts suffered a campaign-ending injury at training. Rumours around the 23-year-old playmaker's health gained traction on social media on Wednesday before Simon Rewa-Louis confirmed what many had been fearing. It was a long-term injury, obviously. First things first, it was devastated for Caleb He's worked uh, his tail off since the Warriors. I mean, he's come in, worked his way through with the drawer, really honed his uh, craft. So really devastated for him to pick up this injury so close to the World Cup. He had a non-contact injury on the transition on Monday. He went up for a ball, landed on that leg awkwardly, felt something straight away, so he came off the field, stopped training. We got him assessed straight away after the game, and it showed that he had uh, quite a substantial injury to his uh, knee. And he'll be up for um, a few months at least. Yeah, nine months to be exact is how long he will spend on the sidelines, ruling him out of the World Cup, as well as probably a good portion of next year's next year's Super Rugby season uh, as well. And to tell us who might fill the void at that number 10 spot is the head of news and sport at the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, Indra Singh. Indra, welcome back to the program. Hey, good morning, Carl. Good morning to you. Uh, look, just firstly, Indra, how big of a blow uh, is this for Fiji? Oh, massive blow. Look, uh, he was the premium number 10. Many were saying that, you know, after Nicky Little's retirement, this was the perfect 10 that we had found amidst uh, all the chaos and trials of who could play the best 10 for the Flying Fijians. But look, injuries are part and parcel of the game. Everyone's devastated about what's happened to uh, young Caleb. Uh, was going to be his uh, bow at the Rugby World Cup at the age of 23. But uh, again, look, uh, things like this happen. He's just going to come back stronger and he's got the support of his teammates around him. But hey, this also inspires the team to play, you know, another level, another notch up uh, for Caleb. Who's coming in is the question, as in Teddy Teller, uh, likely to get the 10 jumper in the team's name later tonight. And the backup will be Simi Kuruvuli or Frank Lomani or uh, one of the two halfbacks uh, until they get a replacement, which is probably going to be Vilimoni Botitu, should his club be able to release him in time for the next match. Yeah, we'll get to Botitu uh, in a second. Just quickly uh, on the injury, news of that uh, trickled out uh, slightly before the announcement. And obviously, as these things do, it spread like wildfire uh, on social media. Um, what's the reaction been uh, in, in Fiji? Is there is there a bit of despair or are people remaining optimistic? No, still optimistic. We've got a brilliant team. You know, the 33 players, well, now 32 now, that have gone across for this rugby call, it's the best prepared team. You know, hands down, Simon Rewa-Louis and his coaching staff have got the best Fijian team in the mix that's gone to a World Cup. And uh, while he is a key player, he will definitely be missed. There are others. I mean, look at look at that backline that we've got. Every other nation is, you know, 
will, you know, be licking their lips to have players of such caliber in their backline. And you will be having the li- one of the or two or three of the stars not even playing in that first game because of the, uh, you know, the competition that plays. So still, I think uh, Fiji is still up there, still, um, um, you know, tipped to come out of its pool and still having the favorite stag in that pool now. Now, you mentioned Villamani Batitu a few seconds ago. Is he looking like uh, the likely candidate to replace Munts at this stage? Yeah, well, look, there were some talks about him or Ben Volavola at the moment. We're hearing nothing confirmed yet that Potitu could be the uh, replacement. We'll wait for Simon and the brigade to uh, tell us that perhaps after the first game against Wales or maybe a little bit before that. The other player that's also coming to, uh, you know, there's some talks about him probably getting a call, but not not necessarily, is uh, the Fiji under-20 fly half who played the recent under-20 World Cup. Um, so it'll be it'll be it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, he is Richie Moanga's nephew, so you know, you know the, the 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 number ten role runs in the family. But at the moment, it looks like Botitu would be the first choice. But I would think that Teddy Teller will remain our premium uh, first five for the remainder of the tournament. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, Batitu, you know, good player. He's played sort of most of his time in the centres, it seems, as of late. I mean, has his form been good? But I guess more importantly, do you think he's got those uh, those playmaking instincts? Yeah, well, look, that's what we're going to miss. I mean, I have no qualms in saying that it's uh, with the departure and the injury to Caleb. You know, you those of us who watched him play in all the test matches this year, particularly against France and England, this kid was absolutely mm-hmm. sensational. Now, it's a big boots to feel, even for Teddy Taylor. We're talking about Botitu here, but for Teddy Taylor, you know, if Teddy can turn up, this is a brilliant chance for him to grab that number 10 jumper and make it his own. But it's big boots to fill. The other question also arises is, uh, you know, penalties and points matter in these kinds of uh, World Cup, at World Cups. Um, realistically, right now, do we have a 50-meter range kicker? You know, should you get a penalty at the halfway mm-hmm. mark in its crucial moments of the game? So those are the little things that Glenn Jackson was the... Uh, one of the backline coaches together with Brad Harris and Simon Raywell, Louis and the likes will be working on this week because uh, if we don't have a 15-meter kicker, then what's the next option? Who, what do we do? Do we kick to the sideline, etc.? So big boots to fill for these uh, players, whoever gets the nod. Um, in the next couple of games. Oh, look, massively. I mean, as you know, that the fly half position it probably is the most prestigious in a lot of ways. And when team wins, it's the uh, it's the fly half who is often immortalised. And uh, and when they don't win, it's unfortunately you know it's, it's your Matt Giddos of the world who <laughs> who unfortunately get forgotten yeah. and not the Stephen Larkhams. Um, look, mo- moving on for for a second, Indra Fiji they obviously uh, share a pool with Australia, Wales, uh, Georgia, and Portugal. Look, even given Munster's injury, w- would you say they're still likely? Uh, to, to be among the favourites to get out of that group stage? Definitely, Kyle. I, I mean, look, as I, as I said earlier on, you know, this is the best prepared Fijian team and the way they've played against the likes of the French and English and beating England at Twickenham. Mind you, England's not having a good run, but that still doesn't matter. You have a team like Fiji straight from Tavuni where they, you know, uh, got together and uh, did team building, etc. Now onto the world stage, beating England. That is going to be absolutely fantastic. And when you've got the fastest backline, mm-hmm. hasn't been, you know, uh, hasn't been hasn't been officially announced. But if you look at the likes of uh, Hambosi, Chuta Wainingolo, and Celestino Rabutomanda, those three guys are beasts in speed. You know, if if you've got facing them, and then you've got a good forward pack that's been, uh, you know, developed well through the Drua franchise. And now with the Flying Fijians, you know, this Fijian team definitely, even apart from um, talking about qualifying from the pool, I still think they can top this pool. 
You, you mentioned that England win a second ago, and I imagine they just would have gotten so much uh, belief out of that. Uh, out of curiosity, on the ground um, in Fiji at the moment, you know, how much uh, excitement is there for this particular um, Fijian team compared to that of World, of World Cup teams in the past? You know, when we beat England, I think everyone was having, you know, keeping keeping their feelings reserved to some extent. But when we beat England, I think everyone's now looking at this team and saying, hey, could this be the first ever Fijian team to even make the semifinal of a Rugby mm. World Cup? You know, could this be the first Fijian team to, you know, take our Tier 1 nations? Uh, definitely can. And mind you, not forgetting our brothers from Samoa and Tonga, they've got a perfect team in the mix as well. You know, these three island teams can really rock the boat, so to say, at this Rugby World Cup and get the Tier 1 nations in World Rugby starting to look at them and say, hmm, these guys need more frequent support in games. That will be a win in itself. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans and I'm chatting with Head of News and Sport at the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, Indra Singh, about the Rugby World Cup, particularly following that uh, that sad injury to Fijian fly half Caleb Munts. Indra, I actually read uh, in your publication uh, yesterday that Fiji could actually be ranked as high as sixth in the world uh, if they beat Wales uh, and, and some other results uh, go their way. That that would surely have to be the highest highest ever, I would imagine. Oh yeah, most definitely. We're already highest ever at seventh. You know, should those results go our way this weekend and we beat Wales and uh, uh, some other result, uh, well, particularly the result between England and Argentina go our way, we'll be up to sixth. And you know what? I've, I've read somewhere it's, it's if Fiji tops its pool, we could even go up as high as five. I mean, what achievement that will mm-hmm. be uh, for the flying Fijians to be up there. And at the moment, we are ranked above Australia and Wales. I mean. That is another achievement in itself with Simon Revolui in the team. Mind you, Simon was the forwards coach for the Wallabies in 2019 World Cup. Mick Byrne has been there. The Drua coach has helped Wallabies and the All Blacks. So they have got some real good input in the coaching staff. Uh, Mick's, Mick's obviously not part of the Flying Fijians, but his role with the Drua. Um, and, and the other guys who've been there, mind you, Jason Ryan, who's the All Blacks forwards coach, was initially with the Flying Fijians before he joined, took up that role with the All Blacks. So, you know, these boys have had some real good guidance. And, you know, if we go up to fifth, fourth or whatever in the world it is, I will not be surprised. It's typical Fijian rugby pattern and style that they are putting onto play now. And it's gone on the days of just the back line. Even our forwards are performing well. Now, Indra, last question uh, before we go. I'm going to uh, ask you to put your heart to one side <laughs> for, for a second, which I know can be very hard to do. But uh, who, who wins this tournament? Ooh, you know. As much as, look, I'd love Fiji too, or one of the uh, Minos to win this tournament, I'm still sticking my neck out and seeing the All Blacks will bounce back. I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a safe pick in some ways, given, uh, given their, their reputation. Uh, Indra, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Pacific Beat today, and, and, and good luck to the uh, Flying Fijians on Monday. Minaka Kyle. That was Head of News and Sport at the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, Indra Singh, speaking there ahead of the Rugby World Cup, which kicks off tomorrow. Well, host nation France will face Fiji in an opening game blockbuster. Samoa, meanwhile, will face Chile that same day, while Ireland will play Tonga on Sunday and Fiji will meet Wales on Monday. And our own Sarah Nangama from Can You Be More Pacific will be among those calling the action for the Stan Sport commentary team. She caught up with the Pacific's Johnson Rayella to give her thoughts on who will leave the tournament as world champions. 
In terms of favourites, it's really hard for me to look past the hosting nation France as well as defending champions the Springboks. But when you're looking at the margin between the top four and world rankings, it's so, so close. Springboks, they're in form. They're doing all the right things. They're hissing at the right time. And their most recent win over the All Blacks gives them lots of confidence. But when you're looking at France, who is the hosting nation, over the past two cycles, they actually haven't made a past quarterfinals. But if you take into consideration their form, the way that they'll be able to host, they'll want to make an, a statement quite early. So I think having the home tournament and the form that they've been in throughout this season, I think it'll actually put them in good stead to prove a point very early on in the tournament. And I think the Springboks and France will be the last two standing, in my opinion, who will come out on top. It's not uh, the favourable opinion, but I think France might be able to do it this time around. I too picked the same two teams, but I would pick South Africa to win. I don't know. I just think that home pressure. Sometimes sometimes people thrive under it and sometimes some people choke. But let's look at our, our Pacific teams now and, and more in particular, you know, obviously in order to get to the quarterfinals, you've got to make it out of the pool stages. What about if we look at Pool D and, and Manu Samoa? You know, they'll be coming off some confidence that close loss to Ireland the other week, beat Japan a month ago is also in their pool. So do they have a realistic chance in Pool D? Yes. Genuinely, what I think in my heart is that this is going to be the tournament of the Pacific Island nations. That win, particularly against Ireland, I know I hated, I hated the reports that came out of it being like, oh, that's not Ireland's strongest 15. Who cares? The Irish coach chose his best 15 place to start that match and his, and furthermore to that, his best 23. And Monastar Moore came within a hairline of touching Ireland. And so I think based on that confidence, their wins against Japan and also their preparation in the lead up to this World Cup, they they have a really solid chance. You're looking at Christian Lafano sitting in that fly half position with his leadership and his experience in international rugby and also previous World Cups. Lima Sapuanga as well sitting there in the ranks ready to be used. These boys will be ready to go the whole way, quite similar to Fiji. It's not necessarily whether they have a realistic chance. It's just about them being able to stay in it for the whole 80 because their attacking flair, their defensive work was essentially what was the difference between them coming in um, really closely behind Island. So again, they have every chance of coming out and this is going to be the tournament that we see Pacific Island nations really rise to the ranks. Yeah, we always see Pacific players, you know, there's those star players that really stand out every World Cup. I mean, you look at 95, there was Jonah Lomu, uh, you look at 2019, you know, uh, Ran as well came out of the NRL to play for Fiji at that World Cup. He'll be back again this time around, but in terms of three Pacific players that you think we should watch out for and why, who would they be for you? In no particular order, Frank Lamani for the Fijians. He played with Fiji and Drua throughout Super Rugby Pacific and the way that he's been able to control the pace of the game, um, set up the attack and just go sniffing for opportunities around the ruck, I think really makes him a standout for his squad and more so throughout the Pacific Nations. Looking at Australia, Mark Nawanganitawase, I cannot stop talking about this kid. And I think rightfully so. The way that he's broken out more recently in the Super Rugby Pacific season with the Waratahs and the way that he's really risen to the occasion for the Wallabies, remembering that this bloke was playing for Australia A. He got a call up late last year to go over and play with Australia. Had an incredible debut. And since then, it's been so hard for Eddie Jones to leave him out of his 23. So looking at his aerial skills, his pace and his X factor to create something out of nothing, particularly when the scoreboard pressure for the Australians, what is the kid going to do? Because he's so unpredictable, but that is exactly why it makes him so exciting. 
And last but not least, Malakai Fekitola, who will be playing for Tonga. He won the World Cup with the All Blacks back in 2015. He is undeniably so talented in that centre position. So I think his experience in a World Cup winning side and all of his, his experience to date in his, throughout his career is going to put him in good stead to have a solid, solid tournament for Tonga. That was Sarah Nagama from That Pacific Sports Show speaking with the ABC's Johnson Rayella. And speaking of the Akali Tahi, one man who won't be suiting up is Israel Folau, who will be discussing at length in a few minutes when we speak to the producer of the new documentary Folau that aired in the Pacific this week. So stick around for that. Pacific Beat. A fresh look at one of rugby's most talented and controversial figures is being shown in a new documentary which went to air in the Pacific this week. The two-part series Folau aims to understand the athlete's story from other perspectives after his views around homosexuality and same-sex marriage cost him his place in the Wallabies squad and sparked a bitter legal feud with Rugby Australia. Ivan O'Mani worked as a producer on the film and he joins me on the line now. Ivan, welcome to the program. Good morning. I mean, first of all, uh, congratulations! I watched the uh, the program a couple of days ago, and, and yeah, I found it I found it quite uh, enthralling. It obviously it really aims to understand um, his story, I guess, through a, a bit of a three hundred and sixty degree lens. Uh, it's told from a lot of different perspectives, uh, including ones that that weren't really heard uh, during his saga as it was playing out. I guess, just firstly, what what was your objective when making this film? You know, <clears throat> when this. Um and his saga played out when um, he was in the midst of his legal uh, uh, trouble or his legal case with uh, with Rugby Australia. Um, I just remember hearing so many voices and all of them were uh, entirely uh, within the usual suspects box, I guess. So it was coaches. It was um, uh, shock jocks on radio, uh, headline writers for newspapers, lawyers. But what I didn't hear and what I was really uh, kind of yearning for was to hear uh, voices from the Pacific, people who um, would understand that story in the appropriate sort of cultural, uh, political context, if you will, um, and people who were actually affected by what happened. Because a lot of people who were talking were, you know, one or two steps removed but it's the people that mattered most that I was hearing the least from. And that's what we try to, um, I guess, address in this series. Yeah, there were plenty of Pacific voices. That was one thing I noticed, uh, as well as, you know, players, coaches, teammates, even celebrities, church leaders as well. Um, and, and even, yeah, members of the homosexual community, some of who were actually rugby players themselves. Um, out of curiosity, how did you go about getting the access that you got? Well, it was it was um, quite difficult. Uh, people uh, like you know in the very early stages, uh, Samuel Karevi um, uh, very very generously offered uh, to be interviewed or agreed to be interviewed, um, and I was really keen to show because at this point we were still hoping to get Israel himself. But I was really keen to show. Israel and his team, that this wasn't going to be a hit job, that we were truly trying to understand the various perspectives. So I also wanted to demonstrate that we were going to interview people who were, uh, if you will, um, in his camp, for lack of a better expression. So, um, you know, Samu 
who is a very conservative Christian man uh, and, um, you know, knows Israel really well, gave gave a, a fantastic interview, and that really helped. Um, you know, Nick Farr-Jones, who's an evangelical Christian, um, and at one point, uh, you know, mentored, if you will, Israel through some of the, uh, the fallout of his tweets or of his posts, I mean, um, agreed to be interviewed. Um, but when the series was formally commissioned and it was a reality that this would happen, um, the people in uh, on, on Israel's side became quite careful. So there were a number of people who we would have loved to interview, including family members or former coaches. Um, and if their position was that they wanted Israel's blessing, uh, so to speak, to do that, then we uh, more oftentimes than not just didn't hear back from them anymore. So it was a bit of a struggle to get the voices um, who would either speak in support of Israel or were actually able to, uh, um, to, to to speak to his position. So luckily enough, we also we did find people, uh, you know, like Tutai Kefu, the the, the, mm. the rugby coach for the Torn team, who said, "No, I'll do it." You know, it's important that we do this, and um, his contribution was absolutely was absolutely invaluable. Um, so that's sort of on on the side of of, of Israel, if you will. Then um, on the side of um, uh, you know the, the, the LGBTQI community, and then especially people um, of of Pacific Islander heritage, that was difficult because. Um, it is a difficult conversation to have, and people who are out are often um, uh, careful in how they express themselves. Um, you know, some struggle with family, with the family response, some struggle with community response, and 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 in the end, um, we did find three or four fantastic voices. But that was a long road, and it um, it involved a lot of consultation. Mm. We had a big um, uh, we had a big sort of community advisory team that worked with us as well, and 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 crucially, we had fantastic. Uh, Tongan women who work with us on the in the key creative team who who had access to that community. Yeah, you, you mentioned Israel. Obviously, you invited him, but he didn't didn't want to take part. What what was his reaction when you first told him um, you were making this documentary? I, I guess just given you know, I, I imagine there would have been so much skepticism, um, like you said earlier, that that it was going to be another hit job. Yeah, it's it's you know sometimes you feel like you can't win. Mm. Uh, with, with projects like that, because um, you know, if people have a, a distrust of the media to begin with, um, and he had felt you know burned after his experience, uh, 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 you know, with with the media around the um, his, his social media posts, you're already on the back foot, mm. and it sometimes feel like the more you try to explain to people that it's not going to be a hit job and it's going to be a fair assessment, the more they distrust you because they're going, yeah. well, you would say that because you're in the media. So that's typically something you would do, you know, and, um, you know, we have a very, uh, uh, thank heavens, we have a very solid track record when it comes to socially and culturally sensitive stuff. Uh, and we could point to that. And, and for a while there, it looked like we would at least be able to sit down with him uh, and Maria and put our case to him, you know, for him to take part. Um, but in the end, um, he and and his team, I, I imagine it was his decision in the end personally, but, you know, having spoken to his team, decided that it would not be in his best interest to participate, participate in any shape or form, which was a real shame. 
You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Kyle Evans and I'm chatting with Ivan Omani, a producer on the two-part documentary series Falau that aired in the Pacific this week. Now, Ivan, there were certain aspects uh, about Israel um, that, that, you know, I guess that were brought to light um, in the film and it goes very much beyond the trial uh, and, and the playing exploits. What was sort of a side of him that, that you wanted to air that I guess people didn't didn't know about him? You know, um, when people, especially celebrities, uh, end up in a position like this, to the outside, they portray this sort of Teflon exterior mm. as if nothing can really touch them. Um, and from um, from Israel's writings, for instance, that we have used in episode one, excerpts from things that he had written um, for a specific website that um, that gives athletes a direct voice. We knew that it did touch him, you know, and all of these events, um, they did bother him. And there was a level of him wondering how he had gotten into this position, you know, and um, I think there was a, that, that, that sort of sense of, if not doubt, at least reflection, I think was really important to convey uh, and, and and importantly, I think the uh, the role of the, um, uh, the 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 role that that faith and family played, uh, and especially family in um, uh, in his decision making around that time. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting parts about the documentary that is that as this saga, I guess, unfolded, he. I guess whether he wanted to or not, he, he did become somewhat of a flashpoint during during certain culture wars that, that were taking place. Um, I guess just just for people who uh, are umming and ahhing about whether or not they want to watch watch this film or, or want to revisit what happened, why should they? You know, why why is this documentary important? First of all, I think it's the first time you will see uh, this number of Pacific voices in a in a documentary. Um, that was made for mainstream Australian television. Um, I think that Australian, I think that Pacifica, um, <clears throat> that diversity of voices is, is really interesting and really important. I think, of, obviously, if you are from the Pacific or live in the Pacific, you understand that there are as many opinions there as there are people. But I think that when, uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of the events around Israel, I think a lot of people in Australia started to view the Pacific as a, as a very homogenous entity, if you will, where everybody surely, you know, thought the same, believed the same. Um, and I think this documentary shows that that is not the case at all. Um, but at the same time, also really makes you understand where, uh, where Israel came from and also how it affected people who, who um, you know, who came from, um, who are of, of, of Pacific heritage themselves and, and grew up in the diaspora. Have you heard from Israel since uh, since the program aired? Well, I had a uh, you know an ongoing conversation with uh, not with Israel directly, but with his agent, and um, uh, you know who's always been incredibly courteous to us. Um, and after the uh, project went to air, we had a I guess a more or less informal conversation in which it became clear. Uh, that uh, that Israel had had seen uh, the film and that he thought it was very fair um, and not at all what he had expected. And so, um, in a way, it filled me uh, with sadness because I thought, well, that's, you know, it could have been uh, uh, even better had you been in it. Um, 
but I was also actually quite happy that um, that after after all that had happened in the two or three years that it took to make the program, uh, that the the man at the centre of the project um, thought that he was fairly portrayed. You mentioned that word sadness. I got to say that I think that was my big takeaway. Without giving uh, too much of it away, yeah, I I kind of left that the whole documentary just just feeling sad about the. Just everything, to, to, to be honest. Um, do you think this program uh, judges his legacy or, or do you think it allows people to make up their own mind? No, I think... Look, I think his legacy on the, on, on the field um, was, was clear to, to one and all. And if anything, um, I think that the film has just solidified that. You know, and by pulling together that extraordinary rise that he had, you know, through three football codes... You know, culminating in 73 appearances for the Wallabies. Mm. Um, as to the man himself, um, you know, there will be people who will never change their mind on anything. Um, uh, but I, I, I'd like to think that um, that at least uh, everybody who watches it uh, feels much better informed um, about him. Uh, but also about the people who were affected by the things that he said at the time. It's funny, having followed his career um, myself, I couldn't believe how many things I'd actually forgotten about him, like his stint in the Australian Football League, for instance, with the Giants. I totally forgot that it even happened, and even just his, his really early days with the with the Melbourne Storm and just how much of a just an on, on-field freak uh, he was. Um, last question, Ivan, because we are uh, running out of time. Um, we obviously know that Israel didn't choose to participate in the documentary. And look, we, we live in a time where we're seeing so much more authorised content, you know, content commissioned by athletes uh, and celebrities, very much with a controlled narrative and, and whatnot. And I do think it actually comes at the cost of documentaries such as this one. What, why is this kind of indepo- uh, sorry, independent filmmaking um, still so important? Well, I guess, you know, if it's if it's in the right hands and made with the right intention, I think it gives a credibility to the narrative um, that a film that's entirely controlled by its main subject lacks. Um, you know, I'm not saying that those documentaries are without value. On the contrary, you know, everybody's got a story to tell and, and some of them are told very well. But you can never quite escape this feeling that um, things that are less flattering to the subject, to the key subject have been left out uh, or have been glossed over or have been treated in a way that is um, uh, more sympathetic to the person in, in, in charge of the project than it should be. And that's something that you don't get with independently produced content. Um, and, and especially, uh, or, or so I'd like to think, for the ABC where, you know, we as even as independent producers have got very strict guidelines to fairness and accuracy that we have to abide by. Uh, I'm inclined to to agree, Ivan. Well said. Um, that's all we've got time for today, but uh, thank you so much for joining us on Pacific Beat. No, thank you. And, um, you know, I hope the audience uh, uh, enjoys the series. We've got one more episode to go in a couple of days, and um, uh, the more feedback we can get from the community, the better it is for us. And, and thanks for having us on the program. Not a problem. All the best. That was Ivan Omani, producer of the two-part documentary series for Lao that aired in the Pacific this week. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Moving on to the Pacific Games, which is just two months away, and in the Solomon Islands capital, Honiara, preparations are underway. China has funded the construction of the main sports stadium 
Indonesia a multi-purpose a multi-purpose hall, and Australia has now handed over a open water sports facility. The ABC's Chris and Rita Amanu Leong in Honiara with more. It's a simple open space with four containers and a larger storage space outside. The new facility, gifted by Australia to Solomon Islands, will host three of the 24 Pacific Games sports, namely va'a, kayaking and sailing. For Solomon's va'a team coach, Betty Kafour, it'll be their new home. We're lucky to have a um, facility like this. And we thank the Australian government for um, donating it. We va'a will put it into good use. And I think it's a big boost for for VAR because this is something new. VAR is a new sport and something new for VAR to, to have a place that we can call our own. VAR or outrigger paddling is relatively a new sport in Solomon Islands. Over 40 men and women, mostly in their 20s, train twice a day in the lead up to the Games. Ms. Kafour sees these donations as means to enhance their efforts towards medals. We're grateful for um, the teams from Perth. I think it's um, Nusa, Hurricanes and Va'apoli. And um, they donated five canoes to us. We have six outrigger canoes on our, for our own. And um, that's V6 and... Um, Six V1 canoes that uh, was bought to us, bought for us by GOC. But then this one's donated by Australia and it's going to really boost our, um, our training. And the Solomon government is ready to support this long term vision. Prime Minister Manasi Songavare wants his country excelling in VAA and other water sports. And see this, you know, a country then burden to battle and see it, uh, to high performance uh, and uh, recreation uh, events. With a message for his people. I people to look up at these facilities and uh, use them as we compare to the uh, in the sports recently and the nationally and uh, make our country uh, proud. Some Solomon Islanders turned up to witness the handing over ceremony. For them, it was huge appreciation. It's good for us living nearby to take responsibility to look after this facility. We feel happy and confident and look forward to the Games. With less than 80 days to go before the Pacific Games, Coach Kafour believes her team can exceed expectations. At the moment now, we're doing very well. I'm looking at medals. Like I told my boys, any medal will do. However, she says there's still more to be done. They expect us to win 40 gold medals. They do their part, we'll do our part. At the moment now, we are hanging on a thin string with nothing. I think the only um, donation we had was from GOC with the canoes. They said they're going to give us funds. But if they're going to give us funds, give it to us now. Despite this, Coach Kafour is hopeful some medals will come their way. It will be the first for a lot of us, a lot of um, athletes. It also encourages them that this is a home ground. It will be a memory that uh, you can also tell to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren in the near future. So I am I'm excited. 
National Va'ar coach Betty Kafoa ending that report from Chris and Rita Amanu Leong in the Solomon Islands capital. This year marks 60 years of the Pacific Games. To celebrate, ABC Radio Australia invites you to be part of our Pacific Games storytelling competition. Did you volunteer when your country hosted the Games? Maybe you were in the crowd when Pacific Sprint Queen Toya Whistle won triple gold. Or perhaps you were part of an opening ceremony and want to share your experience. Games are your games, and we want to hear your stories. Successful storytellers will be mentored by ABC professionals and have their stories featured on ABC Radio Australia, as well as our socials in the lead-up to the 2023 Pacific Games in Solomon Islands. And you'll be paid for your work. Head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific to enter. To the World Game briefly, where a place at the Paris Olympics will be up for grabs tomorrow when Fiji and New Zealand's under-23 men's football sides meet in the final of the OFC Olympic qualifiers in New Zealand. New Zealand secured their place in the decider on Wednesday with an 8-0 drubbing of Vanuatu. Fiji, meanwhile, enjoyed a 3-0 win over the Solomon Islands to set up a rematch with the Kiwis, who beat them 3-1 earlier in the tournament. Here's Fiji coach Robert Sherman. Big smile on the face. How proud are you of your team? Uh, extremely proud. I mean, they've worked extremely hard. Obviously, you can see the fatigue level creeping in. And uh, now they stuck at it and came through. So really proud of them. 1-0 up at halftime. Uh, what was the message in the changing room? We wanted to press a little bit more. Uh, to be fair to the Solomons, they rotated their midfield quite well. So that was causing a little problem. So we fixed that. And then just about maybe more composure on the ball because at times we were coughing it up. And, and staying in tight when we could have moved it. And again, good mileage down the flanks and uh, delivery into the box, always always dangerous from your side. Yeah, yeah, the boys have really bought into this early crossing and, you know, that sort of delivery. And obviously, de- re- retreating defence is always a problem when you're facing your own goal. So, you know, and we're really pleased with the progress they made. And now, what do you have to improve to overturn that 3-1 result against New Zealand from the group phase? Well, first thing, we need to recover. Uh, secondly, obviously, New Zealand, you know, I would say, are the favourite side. Uh, they cause us some problems in, in some areas, and we will rectify that. And then hopefully, if we can just control our possession a little bit more, then I think we can cause a few problems. Fiji football manager Robert Sherman speaking after his side's victory over the Solomon, Solomons on Wednesday, the audio courtesy of the OFC, and they'll face New Zealand tomorrow in hopes of getting back to the Olympics for the first time since 2016. It's that time of the morning to take a look at what's making headlines across the Pacific region and uh, helping us navigate the newspapers, radio stations and online pages this morning is Pacific Beat producer Evan Wazuka. Evan, welcome for a uh, somewhat late news wrap today. Uh, good morning, Kyle. Yes, and it's, it's been an interesting uh, news week. So, yeah, good to have a news wrap right at the end of things with your sports show. <laughs> so, big news yesterday uh, with the arrest, deportation uh, and hunt of the South Korean church or, or cult uh, 
as some would say, as Fiji's Home Affairs called it. That's right. So the Minister of Home Affairs, Pierre Tikandundua, yesterday during his press conference, uh, which happened out of the blue, he announced that police had arrested the four Grace Road uh, executives and that they were hunting for two more who were on the run. Now, out of the four, the minister said uh, two were deported and, and, and the other two, uh, they, they were denied ent- entry on the flight out of the country because of a court order. Uh, but one of those that the minister said is on the run, well, he did manage to speak to the media and um, Daniel Kim, who is the president of Grace Road Group, he um, he wasn't too happy with the Home Affairs comment and uh, he, he took... Um, uh, he with with uh, with the minister calling Grace Road a cult. Um, he uh, he said that these claims are false, and uh, Mr. Kim uh, he also confirmed to Fiji Broadcasting Corporation that a court order has been sought to prevent the removal of Grace Road executives from the country. So arrests have been made, um, but we'll see what exactly will happen, uh, including the deportation of these uh, Grace Roads uh, executives. Yeah, they certainly uh, certainly didn't mince, mince words. And yeah, we're very interested to see uh, what happens uh, on that front. Now, staying uh, on Fiji uh, for a second, there, there's a, a tragic story, uh, it looks like, about a number of deaths from contaminated water. That's right, Carl. So Fiji Village is reporting that three people have died and the suspected cause is from drinking contaminated water in Balevuto, which is in Ba. Uh, according to Fiji's Ministry of Health, uh, the suspected cause of contamination is a dead cow within the water source. But that's yet to be verified with the ministry uh, sending samples to their lab in Suva to verify uh, the exact causes of that contamination. So some, uh, yeah, some sad news out of Fiji. Yeah, no, tragic, tragic to hear. Um, let's move on to Tonga for a second. Uh, the, the Prime Minister has won a no-confidence vote, uh, but the political challenge hasn't completely subsided. No, no, apparently it hasn't. Um, so the background to this was uh, we saw that the Prime Minister, Siosi Sovaleni, he won that vote of no confidence 14 to 11 the other day. Now, Kaneva Tonga is reporting that the opposition uh, are now planning to take the Speaker of Parliament to court over that uh, motion of no confidence. Uh, this was because the Speaker didn't allow um, debate to happen during that uh, motion. Uh, if you think back, they had the two days where they were explaining what the claims were against the Prime Minister. And then when they came to the end of that, they jumped straight into the vote and mm. the opposition had wanted the debate to take place. Uh, and straight away, um, uh, the Prime Minister won that vote. Um, uh, Kaneva News is reporting that uh, Tonga Tapu 4 MP, Mateni Tapu Luelu, he's the one uh, taking that matter to court. Yeah, this sounds like the start of, a, of another court saga of which we've, we've, we've heard, heard lots of recently in various parts uh, of the Pacific. Um, on to Papua New Guinea next, where uh, the police commissioner has announced arrests are Im- uh, imminent for the USB scandal. That's right. So this has been ongoing for quite some time. And um, there was a commission of inquiry by the PNG. Um, now, following that inquiry, which ended the other year, uh, the Commission of Police, David Manning, has advised that um, the police are obtaining warrants for the arrests. They haven't named who are on, who's on that list, which is... Uh, uh, at the time, the current Prime Minister, James Marape, he was the Minister of Finance and he was uh, the one looking after the country's finance at the time. 
Um, so it's it's a really interesting situation, and what will happen? It's unclear. Uh, so Mr. Marape said uh, in a statement that um, he wanted to make it very clearly that any illegal or unruly behavior by supporters or groups uh, will be reacted with uh, but with police uh, swiftly. So that's his his way of saying that you know uh, once that arrest list comes out, uh, uh, the police will not uh, take any um, anything lightly in terms of resistance. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, well, yeah, again, another one uh, we'll certainly be watching going forward. Uh, Evan, thank you very much for joining us on this uh, somewhat late news wrap today. No worries, Kyle. That was Evan Wazuka with News Wrap. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paola Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music. From across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Friday, Fridays at 4pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. On to cricket now, where Vanuatu's women's team is on the brink of claiming the World Cup East Asia Pacific qualifying tournament on home soil. They'll enter the final day of play today as the only unbeaten side after upsetting tournament favourites PNG earlier in the week. While play on the field has been fierce, off it, players have come together for a leadership course run by Cricket Australia. The program is being run by former Australian cricketer and commentator Mel Jones, who says the program covers everything from psychology and even media training. With, with the funding from Pacific Health Sports, um, we've, we've had the opportunity of developing a program. Um, one of them is called Above the Shoulders, so we talk all things sort of the, the mental approach to um, to playing the, the sport of cricket. Uh, there's another element called teamwork, and then yesterday we had a, um, a media training day, um, which myself and Julia Price helped host, where we're working with the players, so across the captains and vice captains and leaders in their teams, where we can give them some skills and drills and tips to um, to help them through some easy um, interviews and some tricky interviews, um, but also get them just to enjoy it and relax and have a lot more confidence uh, in front of the camera, whether it's at a coin toss or, or a post-match interview. But it also gives us the chance to work with um, some up-and-coming commentators as well um, from both here in Vanuatu and, and from Australia who are developing their skills uh, behind the mic too. So between Julia Price, Catherine Fitzpatrick and myself, sort of, you know, three Aussie former players that we all used to tour together, we're now sort of back here in a completely different capacity, but uh, thoroughly enjoying it. Wonderful. So some full-on uh, media training uh, as well as some leadership training, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was, <laughs> it was a real hoot, actually. I, I left completely drained, but and I think most of that was from laughing. Um, it was just a really enjoyable session, and I think it's sort of it strips back all the things that I've learned over the years um, to try and be able to then sort of pass that on to to the players just so that they don't feel as if it's a, an us and them scenario when you get a microphone and that it's just, you know, hopefully not a nice casual conversation. Um, but it also makes you realise just the um, the skills of these players. You know, English for some of them is their second or even third language. Um, so for them to be able to get up and decipher what I'm saying to begin with um, and then sort of compute it through through um, different languages and then reply with a with a articulate sort of answer is is a pretty good skill set to have at the moment. So um, yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun, um, and it's something we've certainly noticed today from prior to the session to today, there was certainly um, a lot more sort of confidence in the way in which 
they came up and answered their questions and, and enjoyed the moment. And how do they go about obviously competing against each other on the field um, within the East Asian Pacific Qualifier and then going into this leadership course and, and working with you? Do they, do they get on pretty well? <laughs> it's amazing. They are brilliant. We're all staying at the same hotel as well. So you sort of see each other at, at breakfast and dinners. Um, but they look, they know that they are in the midst of, you know, a really elite competition, sporting competition where, uh, you know, they're, they're vying for an opportunity of going through to, to the next uh, to the next level to vie off to play potentially for a spot in the next T20 World Cup in Bangladesh next year. So they, they understand that completely, but they also – Understand that you know once you you leave the field, that is a fantastic opportunity of um, sharing knowledge and you know making new friendships and all those sorts of things. And I think they've taken full advantage of that. Yeah, we'll talk about the tournament in just a second. And I suppose just lastly, um, you know, they'll obviously go back to their teams and, and communities um, after this tournament's all wrapped up. Will they now be better equipped to, I guess, deliver the game uh, at the grassroots at a both, I guess, a junior and, and senior level when they when they get home? Yeah, without a doubt, and that's that's one of the key sort of outcomes that that we're looking at here from in terms of um, structuring these leadership courses. So the players can certainly go back to their countries uh, and instill, you know, probably a newfound love of the game in a different way, but also you know pass that on to to youngsters. I know there's. 25,000 people participating in cricket here in Vanuatu and I think the way Vanuatu are playing at the moment that's going to be on the on the rise um the ICC having run a level two here as well which is fantastic news because usually a, a level two um players and, and coaches need to to go to Australia or to New Zealand so to have the capabilities of having Catherine Fitzpatrick and Julia Price here to, to help run a level two um just makes things so much easier for them so you know coaches are getting upskilled players administrators is um, that all bodes well for the future development for the game. Yeah, and just on Vanuatu, uh, tomorrow, well, today when this interview goes to air, uh, will be the final day of the Women's World Cup East Asia Pacific qualifying tournament. And it looks like it's Vanuatu's to lose in a lot of ways. Well, they have been the surprise packet. That is that is for sure. They uh, just topped off a, a win against Indonesia, um, and Indonesia were absolutely flying. Um, and in saying that, they were flying. I don't know how they were because it took them three days to get here. They've played six games in four days, um, which was probably you know creating a little bit of a toll on the on the physical um, side of things. But Vanuatu pulled off a magnificent win against them. So they're, they're going into their last two games with the opportunity now of, um, of going through and, and winning the qualifiers and then going through to the next level, which is a historic moment for them. Um, they've won games and beaten teams that they've never beaten before in, uh, in 20 years of competitive cricket. Former Australian cricketer and commentator Mel Jones speaking there in Vanuatu will play their final games today against Samoa and Japan. And that does bring us to the end of Pacific Beat this morning. We'll be back at the same time Monday morning. That's 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon from 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned because the news is next. I'm Kyle Evans. Thanks for joining me. Listener.